Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my good friend, frat brother, and Rutgers colleague, Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson, to the guest chair today as we discuss his new book with Brother Randall Pinkett, Black Faces in High Places, 10 Strategic Actions for Black Professionals to Reach the Top and Stay There. J.R., as he is affectionately known by so many, is the Prudential Chair in Business at Rutgers Business School, the Academic Director of the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development, and a founding partner at BCT Partners, a Black Enterprise Top 100 company. He's won numerous academic and business awards, secured numerous National Science Foundation grants, and has appeared in a number of media outlets like NPR, PBS, NJ Biz, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Dr. Robson, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for an affordable and efficient way to create your next podcast, live stream, or promotional video? Introducing the studio at Carney Point, catering to creators, marketers, corporate, and educational brands alike. Our state-of-the-art studio provides the flexibility you need to produce the creative content your audience is looking for. Our friendly and knowledgeable staff will handle the technical details, keeping you free to focus on what matters most, creating the best possible media for your audience. Click the banner now for a free consultation. JR, I know you are busy on the media circuit promoting your new book with Randall, so I want to sincerely thank you for taking some time to stop by our show so that we can discuss this topic that is so near and dear to our hearts, but also central to much of the work that we do, which is trying to break down barriers so more people of color can reach the top and stay there. So our listeners are definitely in for a treat today. So JR, let's get started. Now, we're going to talk about your newest book, but I think it's appropriate to shout out your previous book, which was Black Faces in White Places. As those of us who have read both, we can easily see the connection and, and see how that book kind of served as the foundation for this new one. But for those who might not have read the first one or might not be able to see that connection, can you break it down for us, what you see as the connecting force between those two books? First of all, thank you, Oscar. We are been overdue to do a podcast, so I'm happy to be on here with you. And thanks for remembering that we had a book. It was 12 years ago. Right, right. It was 12 years ago. In 2010, we released a book called The Black Faces in White Places. And, you know, that was about our experience of being the one or the only one in the room, you know, in front of the classroom or in the classroom, in the business, in the corporation. You know, we've had different experiences, both uh, Randall and I. And we are happy we wrote that book, but it was kind of level one. It was what happens when you enter the workforce and what are some of those challenges and how do you deal with it? And there are, there are certainly some parallels between the two books because to be completely transparent, we had a lot of things we wrote the first time around that we didn't use and weren't able to use because you know, just have limitations of how much you can put in, into a you know, single volume. So we had always thought to ourselves, well, you know, some of those things we weren't able to write in the first book. One day, one day, we'll write the second book. Finally, that day came. And that's how we got to the new book, Black Faces in High Places. And the other part of that story is certainly over that 10-year period of time, 
uh, lots of things happen for us personally and, and in the nation. And that arc and the people that we've met along the way and the people we were able to follow during that period of time, that was to us a gold mine. We could actually see some of those black faces in white places who were making strides towards the top actually see some of them achieve the top, the top of their game or get to those some of those very high plateaus. Whether that was the person we knew as Mayor Cory Booker in the book one is now Senator Cory Booker in book two, where we followed the the trajectory of Don Thompson, who was COO of McDonald's, became the CEO of McDonald's, and then you know retired and has been doing a bunch of things in philanthropy, and, and he's in the book. So numerous others that either we interviewed or profiled. That's what led us to, to get to the, the second book. And in both cases, we like the number 10, I guess, because we had 10 strategies in the first book. In this book, we got 10 strategic actions. And it's just a, a, certainly a, a different level of, of thinking that led us to, to write this book and pull in the lessons we learned from many Black professionals at the top of their game. That's a great connection. And, and I'm glad that you saw that connection for the 10 and 10, because I saw it. And for all of you who don't know, after reading the book, you should be able to tell that the authors are engineers. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. I, I love just how you all broke up the entire book into this matrix of action levels, mindsets, skill sets, and two sets. So I would just let you take your pick where you would like to start and just unpack all of that. And what's the take home message in your perspective, that readers should get from the book based on this matrix of ideas that you present. It's funny that you comment on us being engineers. That is the truth. I mean, so <laughs> if you don't know what that means, you know, to know engineers, engineers tend to be very analytical. We have been trained in, you know, our undergrad engineering curriculum. We have been trained to look at things, break them down into problems, systematize it in some way so that uh, you can understand it. And maybe that's, you know, a lot of that came into the book. So for us, you know, this has been a, a labor of trying to think about all the things that we've learned from the people who are part of the book, people we profile, people we've seen. But it's also trying to distill the lessons into something that's, that's usable. So that's how we get to this, these 10 strategic actions. And then, of course, we want to organize it in a way that made sense. And so each of the strategic actions builds on the previous one. So that by the time you get to number 10, you know, there is a lot of development, personal development, but also development in terms of interacting with others and what we're asking or telling you that things that people have done that have led them to success and significance. So that's another theme in the book. It's not just about getting your own personal success. It's certainly for us a matter of seeking significance and impact on our community, the Black community. Excellent. And so we're going to unpack those strategic action plans in just a moment, but I want to go back to mindsets and see if we can elaborate a little bit on that. Most of us are familiar with the growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So, you know, having a growth mindset is really important in the book. The global citizen's mindset, we can kind of deduce based on common knowledge what that is, but you go further and talk about the entrepreneur's mindset, the game changer's mindset, and then a servant leader mindset. So, 
I would like for you to elaborate a little bit more specifically on the game changers mindset. What does that mean to you as authors and, and why it's important for people to have this type of mindset? Yeah. So game changers mindset happens a little bit later in the book around um, strategic action number nine. So you've gone through eight before you got there. It comes down to this. We think about what we do, whether we are in a corporation, whether we're in an academic institution, or whether we're doing work in the community or in your own business, is that you're playing a series of games. You're playing a game, right? And at some point, when you have achieved certain success in that game, you have to start thinking about, well, was that the right game to play? Was that game right for me or other people who are like me? Or is that game the right game for the community? And so game changers start thinking about and rethinking the system, the institution, you know, the, the way the game is played so that they can make it more equitable for other folks, for us. And so in many cases, we're talking about institutions that, that are not run by black people. And that has lots of layers to it. But one of those layers is if I have played this game, have been successful, and now I'm in charge of the game, can I make the game different? Can I make the game better for those who are coming behind me? And so systems transformation or transforming those systems that we have in our communities and corporations and institutions, that is the game, the game changers mindset. That's amazing. And in fact, it brings to mind some of my thinking around systemic barriers, right? And even in this space, when we talk about Absolutely. diverse equity inclusion, even the phrasing of games and like playing a game, you know, people in the field will move away from even calling it a game, right? Because the connotation of a game is, it ends, right? Like there's four quarters of the game or whatever, 12 innings or whatever, right? Like that game ends. It's a tournament. It's a right, championship. Right, right, right. But these things don't end for many of us. And so it's ongoing. So having that aspect brought to light now, does it change your opinion at all about using that terminology or would you go with a different terminology to explain these systemic issues that maybe play or what? Yeah, it's a fair it's a fair point, but we've always looked at the term game as being a, a bit broader than the what, what most people you know think of, right? And you know, there are the economists talk about games because Game theory is all about how you approach things. What we like about using the term game is that it implies there's a way to win. There are strategies that work. Some strategies are better than other strategies. And you can't just go in there unless you've learned the rules of the game. And then at some point, again, our point is that you are responsible for changing the game. When we used to do it as kids, we play a game, learn how to play a game. And then, you know, the next time you played it with your friends, you know, people start changing the rules up. House rules, right? <laughs> That's right. House rules. Monopoly house rules. You mean when I pass there, I get $400, not two? That's a house rule, man. Right. House rules on Uno, house rules, etc. So you go out, you're playing basketball with your friends. And at this house, we play it this way. <laughs> so I'm saying, that the, the game changers mindset is one of how do we change the game for others? And that is captured in our way of thinking about transforming systems. Jeffrey Kennedy, one of the people we profile in the book, began to transform the system for young people in Harlem. The Harlem Children's Zone has had enormous success because 
Jeffrey Canada and all the people working with him. I'm not, you know, it's not just him, but he led he led the effort. They decided to connect some pieces in Harlem that were historically not connected, which happens a lot to urban communities. The resources were there, but how do we connect them so that the young people benefit? That was changing the game. That was transforming the system. And the young people who've come through those programs and initiatives are forever changed. Right. I like that response. As we think about the 10 strategies, and we understand that it's sequential, like you should walk through all 10 of these. But say, for example, you can't get the all 10 or whatever, right? (laughs) Yeah. If you had to find a top three that people should focus on, you know, (laughs) what would you say would be the top three that you would suggest people focus on? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a difficult one because it's like choosing your favorite child. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I need them all. I need them all for different reasons, for different reasons. But your point's taken that the you know, there's, there's a lot there in doing those 10. And yeah, it would be great to do them sequentially. Maybe that's not necessary, but certainly to do them, uh, have these things, these skill sets these tool sets, these mindsets accomplished would allow you to have more success and significance down the road. That's, that's what I would say. And I would point to three that are, are central to that arc of development. Because when I've seen people do this, and then when we talk to the notable Black professionals in the book and interviewed them, we could see it in their trajectory as well. We could see how they found meaning and purpose in their life. So strategic action number three. We can see how they use networks, and we can see how they how important mentors were to them. Let me go back through each one of them. In strategic action, you know, number three, we talk about this idea of ikigai. The formal title of that chapter is "Develop Self Mastery and Find Meaning." When we think about how people do that, when we talk to lots of professionals who've been out there for a little while. They are struggling with not finding meaning in the work that they do, but needing to make some money so they stay in that job and are unhappy for many years because they don't, they don't feel as if there's a connection between who they are and the work that they do and the communities they want to serve. And frankly, the uh, way that they make money because they got to support themselves and their families. And so uh, in that chapter, we, there's a Japanese concept called ikigai, which is graphically displayed as a way to bring some congruence to all these, these different dimensions of their life. People who figure that out, the earlier they figure that out, have so much more happiness because they've realized that these pieces are, don't have to pull them in different directions. We can find uh, opportunities to do that. And when people have made those kind of pivots from corporate to community work. They, they just find that their lives are, are, are much better less stress and and the like. I won't spend as much time on the other two because these are things that people talk about a lot. You know, we talk about networking and mentorship and certainly allyship to to kind of go along with both of those. But how you are thinking about your network matters, uh, how strategic you are about it, and certainly having mentors. Let me tell you one quick story, something that was an amazing sort of surprise. We interviewed Kathy Hughes. You know, Kathy Hughes, 
founder of Urban One, sorry, Radio One, which became Urban One and has all of the different pieces, TV One and everything like that. She told us a story about how one of her mentors had encouraged her to, to keep going and moving. And we asked her who that mentor was. And she said it was John Johnson from Ebony Magazine. I said, John Johnson was your, was your mentor? I mean, how else can you attribute some of the success to getting some great wisdom and advice from people who have been building it? John Johnson was uh, Kathy Hughes' mentor. And we heard, kept hearing stories of this time after time of how important mentors were in the development of great entrepreneurs, great business leaders, great community leaders. Absolutely. That was a great story. And so speaking of stories, this is something that we know if you write a book, like the most compelling books have these stories about, you know, people's success and people's journeys. But that's also a huge risk in telling individual stories in books, right? So <laughs> yeah. were you all, of, uh, I guess, a little bit hesitant at all when you think about the stories that you tell, because, you know, what can be in print is in print forever, right? <laughs> and there are many cases where, you know, authors write these beautiful stories about these case studies and stuff for people. And then like two years later, like scams and scandals and everything break out. Yeah. So did you all ever consider that at all as you pondered writing a book with the people? <laughs> <laughs> we considered a lot, you know, we considered a lot. We're like, boy, we want to make sure we write about people who you know have right. some good credibility and integrity. And I'm not going to be reading about them right, right. a few years later. So yeah, it was something we thought about a lot. Many of the people we, we selected, to write about, you know, have long histories. And we were reflecting on the history of their story. That was helpful that they had a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year arc of, of a story that we were telling. So we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Right. I mean, you just think about the book, you know, Good to Great and stuff and how like the companies they profile in the book, they mean, afterwards, like these great companies and then they like have... You know, bankruptcy or something later on. Or something. That, that's so. right. It, it happens. It, you know, then they come out with you know the second edition, the third edition of that book, right? To correct some of that. Everything that we said before, let's let's revise that a bit. Well, yeah, but that's a, a book that we looked at in, in writing ours because we wanted to have models that would hopefully stand the test of time. But yes, you, it's something we think about when I when I wake up every day, turn on the news. I'm like. Right. Uh, don't let anybody who we talked about in the book be in the news today for something bad. <laughs> Were there any stories that did not make the book, like people profiled or, or case studies that did not make it that you wish would have made it? Or? In our first book, we talked about some people who uh, have done some great things and you know, just ran out of space. One person in particular who we're going to be interviewing in, in our own Instagram Live interview is uh, Janine Uzel who is now the CEO of the National Society of Black Engineers. Now, we talked about her in the first book about her journey through General Electric. We have a little blurb in there about that. We wanted to write more about her. But what's fantastic about her story is how she has moved from corporate into nonprofit, the nonprofit world, where she uh, spent some time as uh, in charge of the Wikimedia Foundation, part of everybody knows about Wikipedia, and traveled the world talking about how to tell your own story. And now she's coming back to uh, an organization that we've had learned so much from and contributed so much to, uh, the National Society of Black Engineers. And she's just a great example of somebody who has done 
many of the things we talk about in the book and has learned over time how to develop leaders and how to make an impact on the community. It's a beautiful story. I wish we could have had more time to put her story in there because she's a, she's a fantastic individual and a shining light of, of what we talk about in the book. Well, thank you for that. You heard it here first. <laughs> we look forward <laughs> to hearing more of that story. So you and Randall spent a great deal of time talking about the role of culture, and more specifically Black culture in the book, which is something I absolutely love. So tell our listeners why this was so important to you and how it relates to Black professionals getting into these high places. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great point. Thank you. First of all, thank you for reading the book because I can tell oh, yeah, you read absolutely. it. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Pre-ordered. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Another theme that we try to carry through the book is that your blackness is an asset, not a liability. All right. So you got to get that in your head. Everybody got to get that in their head. And there's so many messages and images out there trying to counter that, that what we understand to be a reality that we bring, we black people bring something to the table that's unique, that other people do not have. That's important to realize that our value and realize what we are bringing to every, every situation. So in order to capture that, the book is called Black Faces in High Places. We could have used lots of terms to sort of capture this, but the thing that unifies the diaspora is that is blackness. It's, it's the substance of our Africanness, where we've come from. And so what's important to us, what has been important to us over the years is how we learn about our history, not only in this country, but going back onto the continent and throughout to realize where we've been and where we're coming from. That's a form of understanding yourself. It's a form of self-determination. It's a form of understanding the history and the royalty and the expertise that has come from our community. And then if you firmly understand that, now when you're marching into your new business, your corporation, your nonprofit or other community leadership, you're bringing that with you. So every point of the way, we feel like that is a foundational piece. And if you don't have that set, we get what we have seen over the years. We've seen people get to these high places and forget where they've come from, not acknowledge their blackness, not acknowledge their community. Everybody else is looking out for their community. And then we're, we get people up there who are not looking out for our community. That's ridiculous to us. So that's part of the reason that we spend time in the book talking about everybody finding and understanding where they're coming from. That's a really important point that I'm glad you just hit home because it's not about just making it to the top. There's a responsibility that goes along with that. And if you just want to be a first and you don't care about the community, then I'd rather you not be the first, right? Because you, in, in essence, can do more damage. And so representation is important, but representation plus values, <laughs> you know, that's much more important. <laughs> To us as a community. That's right. So this is not just about case studies. It's not just about your experiences, anecdotes. You all have data in this book. You do a great deal of research. I really appreciate. And so one of the particularly insightful pieces of data and graphs that's in the book is the data speaking to the career trajectories of minority 
versus non-minority executives and managers. So can you explain to our listeners what we tend to see over a 20-year career for these groups and, and why do you think these trends are the way they are? Great, great question. That work that we're citing at, at that point in the book comes from, as you know, the great Dr. David Thomas, who at the time was a faculty member at Harvard Business School, but of course now is the president of Morehouse College. And Thomas, Thomas and Grabar, you know, they, they did a fantastic study, which is like the kind of the gold standard of looking at the careers and career trajectories of you know, what they called at the time minority managers and executives. And over that 20-year period of time, you could kind of put the so-called minority executives and professionals and who were at the managerial level into two camps. There was a camp that plateaued, and there was a camp that excelled and went to those higher heights in the companies. And what people would assume sort of their Monday morning quarterback, and they look at it and say, oh, well, here's what I think should have happened, is that the executives who got to the highest heights were the ones who took every promotion and soared up the, the ladders you know, as fast as they could. And that's not true. That's the counterintuitive part about the study, which is what makes it an amazing study, is that we find out that those who made it to the top who were members of minority groups, and in his case, I believe they have both Black and Hispanic and some Asian managers in their set, were the ones who were very deliberate about which assignments they would take. And they took their time getting up the ladder. And as they went up the ladder, they had not just one mentor, but multiple mentors who were giving them insights and information into what, what was going on. And so by the time they get to the sort of the upper middle management levels, they have insights into what's happening at the higher levels and then excel by being put into those positions. The other counterintuitive thing that, that we saw was that those minority executives that made it to the top, they had diverse networks. It was not all black. It was not all white. Because those folks who had all black or all white networks, they plateaued. But when they had a mix of both black, minority, other minority groups who were some of their executives that were in their mentor network, and as well as others, that's where they had more success. So you know, those are just some interesting insights that were borne out by the interviews we did. When we talked to people, they were telling us stories about how they navigated it. And some of the stories were stories that we could get from publicly available information. You do a profile, you look at the story of somebody that has been in the public eye, like a Ken Chenault, or you think about, well, we looked at Ken Chenault. It was a good example of somebody who had a mentor who you know wasn't a black CEO. It was the previous CEO of American Express. And it's an interesting story because that Harry Golub was the one who said, this is the guy who's going to follow me. This is the man who's going to follow me and may set him up with the mentorship and the assignments that he needed to have in order to be prepared for that. So it doesn't always come from, and just statistically, it's not going to come from another black CEO. It's actually very rare. Although we got exceptions. You got Ron Ferguson over at TIAA Cref has left to become the chairman and the CEO is the Thunder Duckett. 
And that's a very rare instance where a Fortune 500 company went from one black CEO right. to another. Right. And so this reminds me uh, of the most recent research uh, about glass cliffs, where we are seeing now the potentiality of more women and people of color being promoted into the top spaces, but they are typically more precarious positions, like the company or the organizations are doing poorly, or there's like just been a big scandal. So the likelihood of failure is, is a lot higher in those instances, right? Versus if you're taking over a company that's doing really well, and you just have to keep on that trajectory. And so it's like, it's a second form of discrimination that we're seeing that women and people of color are facing now. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind when people plan out their careers, right? Because again, it's not just jumping to every opportunity that comes your way, which you know these data show, it's being really strategic about the opportunities that you take. And, and it's not to say that you, know, you should never take a glass cliff type of position because some of our great friends and colleagues, I know Lex Washington and Marla Watson, they're doing great research on the opportunities of, of Black people taking these glass cliff opportunities and doing really well and using it to their advantage. But it does speak to just the complexity, right? And all of the multiple barriers that are put in place for many of us when we do get to these positions. But one of the things that I am always preaching and teaching with my mentees and, you know, when I have the opportunity to teach students and the like is know your strengths. Like I love Laura Morgan Roberts' framework of reflect the best self, right? Know your strengths and be really strategic in terms of the positions and opportunities that you take, because you're not on anyone else's timetable. Don't think of yourself as a failure if you don't get this position or you, or you turn this down. I mean, but that's pretty hard for many of us to follow that advice, right? Even I admit for myself, um, it's hard for me to always follow that advice because, you know, we do love to get promotion opportunities, right? Like it's like a pat on the back, <laughs> but sometimes we have to just take a step back and reflect. And, and so, I know you share a very storied career, great career, but I'm sure you had some moments yourself where there may have been opportunities to come your way that you had to take a step back and it's like, oh, maybe not now, you know? I don't know if you care to share any of those type of <laughs> situations. <laughs> I'll say this. You mentioned that on the, the Prudential Chair, which is a great honor because the person who had the Prudential Chair before me was Dr. Jerome Williams, who was one of my mentors. Mine as well. <laughs> Yeah, he has set the standard on so many different things. And a few months before he passed away, he had said something like, yeah, you know, I want to, we're going to recommend you to be the, the next prudential chair. That is, in essence, was what he was saying. And, you know, I, I smiled and laughed about that. I said, yeah, but you're not going anywhere anytime soon, right? But it's, people say stuff like that all the time to their mentees, but then they don't tell anybody else. It turns out he did tell the right people. He told the dean. He told the chancellor. You know, in academic terms, you know, he told the right people in the chain who can actually make that happen. And that made it easier for me. That mentorship thing matters. It does. Mentors have to, a certain responsibility to do certain things, not only to prepare their mentees, but also to prepare the institution, the corporation, the organization for you. That's where I will forever be indebted to him. Not only did he pave the way, but he literally laid the breadcrumbs for the institution to make the right decision. And, uh, you know, I will take that with me and do the same thing that he did. You know, as a result, you know, there's lots of people calling and saying things like, oh, no, you know, you should consider this or consider that. But I, I read my own book. Mm -hmm. Right, right. 
in reality, I read David Thomas's work, and I said, uh, you know, every opportunity is not the right opportunity. I, I know my skill set. I know where I'm coming from. I know where my strengths are. And, you know, frankly, there's a timing aspect of when's the right time. I expect to be around for, for a while, good, a good while. I learned just as much from writing this book as, as hopefully people do from reading it. That's great. I, I'll just share one quick anecdote. Dr. Wims, you know, when I came to Rutgers in 2013, he was one of the first people who reached out to me, congratulated me, welcomed me to the school. And mind you, for people who don't know, I'm on the Camden campus and he was on the Newark campus at the time. And so he invited me up to the Newark's campus. And I, I went up to visit him and we just had a great time. And he just introduced me around to so many people there. So many of my colleagues, right, there in the department. But that was the type of person he was. Like, I, I'm not in marketing. You're, you're not in marketing, right? Like, we're not in the same discipline. But he did see it as a, as a responsibility of his to really mentor the younger generation. And so I count him as a mentor of mine as well. And it's just a, a tragic blow that he's no longer with us. But his legacy definitely lives on. Absolutely. In, in us. In us. So now it's, it's been happening more than I'd like to say that the, you know, the elders the and the mentors are passing on the the mantle to us uh, as we get into our careers. We've now you know done some things and have moved in different positions. I take that seriously. And I know you. No, absolutely. Too. Absolutely. The last, I guess, strategic thing that I'm going to ask you, because you gave us the matrices, you gave us the 10 strategic action plans, but you also give us acronyms. That's easy for us to remember. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to ask you to explain the concept of voice to our listeners, which was vision, opportunity, innovation, capital, and entrepreneurial networks. That's right. That's right. I'm glad you got it. You got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Well, I try. <laughs> so Dr. Pinkett, Randall, and I have been college roommates. You know, we've known each other for 30, more than 30 years. And one of the things that we share is a passion for entrepreneurship. And one of the themes that came out from talking to all of these uh, wonderful Black professionals who've made their way to the top is that they all had a way of thinking that really was very entrepreneurial. And it's not just the entrepreneurs. It was the people who were in large organizations, people who were in corporations, people who were in the community. They all had a entrepreneurial mindset. Now, we break that idea of thinking in those ways into both what you may do inside of big companies and corporations and organizations or what you might do on your own as an entrepreneur. And we talked to both of those in Strategic Actions 7 and 8. But to get there, we got to introduce this, this idea of what does it mean to be or to use an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial thinking at this level. So that's where voice comes in, because it can be applied in, in either context. Everybody's got to have a vision. You need to you know, look for and seek opportunities that your approach needs to bring in innovation, that there's different forms of capital, not just money, that allow you to, to accomplish these tasks. So you got to figure out how to get those things. And the types of networks that you need in order to be able to be successful are, in fact, what we sometimes call entrepreneurial networks, which are you know, the sparse networks, the networks that take advantage of borrowing networks from other folks. And you know, those five letters and five words 
become, in essence, a rallying cry for somebody who wants to make their way up the ladder. The most successful people we met had entrepreneurial approaches to their careers, entrepreneurial approaches to how they function inside of a big organization. The entrepreneurs certainly had entrepreneurial approaches. So that, that was a given for them. But then it was even how they thought about their entrepreneurship. So, yeah, we, we like to make some nice uh, acronyms to help people remember them. So I'm glad voice stuck in your mind because it is important. But let me, let me leave you with a new one that we did not put in the book, but that we are going to be using from here going forward. You know, you have to think about your leadership in terms of, and I'll be specific, your black leadership in terms of five things, which we call the special sauce. You got to be strategic. <laughs> you got to think about how you're going to be, uh, think, seek autonomy. All right. You got to think about how you're going to be unapologetic about being black. Um, and you got to think about community engagement. S-A-U-C-E. You know, every one of the folks we profile in this book had the sauce. They had the special sauce that made them special. And when we look back at what we want to leave as a legacy, we want to help create as many strategic, autonomous, unapologetic, community-engaged folk who are Black professional leaders uh, wherever we go. I love that. Special sauce. I'm going to ask you perhaps a, a controversial question, <laughs> right? This is not an indictment of the book at all. I love it. I encourage everybody to read it. <laughs> oh, hold on. Let me let me sit down and get ready for this question. Yeah, but coming from a systems perspective, I'm just curious if you think it is possible or even, you know, you just make space for it. The likelihood that people can do, Black people can do all 10 of these stuffs and still not make it to the top, Right. yeah 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 well it's interesting you you point that out so there's this this point in the book this this moment in the book where we we shift from talking about people working in large companies and organizations and then we speak a lot more about the entrepreneurial side of things and the reason that it's there is that we think that there's a point in people's lives where they're learning a lot of these skills earlier in their career. And they, you know, they, they get to this middle part of the career and they got to make some decisions and choices. We see it all the time. We see it all the time where there are some folks who start on the entrepreneurial path and they just keep going on it, but they got to learn about networks. They got to learn about mentors just as like everybody else. We see folks who do that in companies and corporations and organizations and communities. They say, I got to learn the ropes and they do. But the question comes at a point that usually coincides with uh, the middle of your life. <laughs> Earlier the better, but you know, a lot of folks get to that mid-30s, early 40s, and they start asking the questions, what do I want to do? How will I leave a legacy? And so there are people who will then take up a different challenge. They will pivot. They will change careers. They will start their own businesses. Some people hit certain ceilings in their companies. I know a lot of a lot of our sisters, black women in particular, have found that they get to a certain height in their organization. They realize that for various reasons, perhaps they dedicated some time to raising a family in, in collaboration at the same time when they were also going up the corporate ladder, but they felt as if the mommy track was a diversion from where they were going up. And they, and they say, you know what? I don't really need this. They start their own companies. So that doesn't stop you from getting to the heights. It just is a different 
way of going to the high parts. Don't assume that when we say high places, that high places is only in the corporation because there are lots of ways to make an impact, to be successful, and also to, to be significant. So yes, technically, are there people who could do all of these things and still not make it? Well, the question is, did they see all the opportunities that were in front of them? Did they really think about where they could make the most impact, use their skills in the, the best way? I hope that people don't wait till they're 65 and retire to do that. I think we could do that a lot earlier and change a bunch of things. There's so much talent in our community that that is happens to be in companies and corporations. And I'm not saying that's not a good place to be. You could be there, but it's not the only place you can be. And it's not the only opportunity. So the, the wake-up call for a lot of companies out there is that some of their Black employees are making choices right now and have made adjustments in their lives. And you may not be the priority. <laughs> and so they're making choices and opportunities. They, they can now seek a different, a different type of high place. I don't know. That to me is where I see some of the variation in, in what happens to people and their outcomes. It's about choices they make typically middle of their career. Am I going to stay in this company? Am I going to go? Am I going to create my own company? Am I going to go? Am I going to go to a community organization? What am I going to do to seek meaning? Because those things become much more meaningful as you grow and develop yourself. I think that's a perfect answer. I love it. And so I could talk to you all day, but I do have to close and I'm going to close on this question. What was one of the most surprising things you learned while writing this book? So, I mean, I know you learned a, a great deal of things, but what, perhaps what was a, a shocking thing? That's something that you perhaps didn't think you would have learned in writing this book. Ooh, that's a, you know, that's, that's not an easy one. <laughs> I alluded to one of, one of the things earlier, just that the mentors how important the mentors were to some of the luminaries in, in our community. And in some cases, who the mentor was, you know, not knowing about that. There's another story we tell, which was a very big surprise to me. Did not know about this. And it just really only came out recently. I mean, I talked about Kathy Hughes. We also interviewed Bob Johnson from BET. If you're of a certain age, uh, like we are, we watch both of these these companies, Radio One and BET, kind of rising in the 1990s. But what most people don't know, and it's the story we tell in the book, we interview both of them to get this story. There was a merger proposed between BET and Radio One. Now, it didn't happen, obviously, because we you know we talk about these two different companies, and obviously, one path uh, stayed family-owned, community-owned, and the other one went the corporate route. But there was a moment where there was a potential merger between the two, and I just we just had to imagine for a moment what that would have looked like. A Black-owned company that controlled radio and TV and was thinking about how to be the access point for all of the advertising and media for Black America. What would that would have looked like? So the surprise was that it didn't happen. But then we talked to them and you find out it's really not that much of a surprise because they are two different, two different companies, two different types of CEOs at the time and founders. You know, one was very much a corporate mindset, BET, and the other was much more family, business oriented, although, again, it's become much more of a corporation since then. You know, that those are two cultures, two kind of mindsets that don't 
necessarily mesh together, let alone personalities that mesh together. So the surprise is that even as we see black faces getting to high places, we have not seen as many collaborations, uh, mergers, joint ventures, things along those lines that have pulled together some of those large companies and institutions that we have brought together and created as, as a community and bringing them together. We haven't seen that. And we need more of that because that's how you create staying power. And the counter story, I know I've mentioned his name already, the counter story is that we have uh, lots of large family-owned businesses that have grown to a point, but then if you don't change and innovate, you disappear. So John Johnson and Ebony Magazine disappeared because there was a, a long history, but the times changed around them and they didn't change. Now, there's a new wave of Ebony Magazine coming out that's supposed to be taking care of some of that, but it didn't have to go away. You didn't have to lose Ebony and Jet if we had stayed up with the times. Maybe that was the time to find the right merger, the right companies to merge with. And I've always been one to be collaborative and to work with others and to work with my business partners. So the surprise is that we don't do that enough. It's one of the reasons we wrote the book. We wanted to encourage more of that, show how it can be done and get people thinking that we can create some very large scale um, and profitable and community-oriented businesses if we put our mind to it. I love that. I love that. So thank you, JR, so much for joining me in the guest chair today. So you dropped a lot of pearls of wisdom for our listeners to not only make it to the top and stay there, but you also gave people who are already at the top a roadmap to break down these barriers that prevent so many from having a real opportunity to make it to these high places themselves. So I wish you and Brother Pinkett all the best with the book and all of your ventures together. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, CO Power LLC and the studio at Kearney Point. The studio at Kearney Point is a state-of-the-art facility to handle all of your recording and production needs. For more information, please visit their website at www.kearneypoint.studio. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management and consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Mm-hmm.